today on Grace To You. If you thought he came like a genie out of a bottle to do what you want him to do, you've got the wrong Jesus. He came to confront your sin and your need and to offer you a gracious salvation through faith in his name and demonstrates that meekness by riding on this animal. What in the world makes us so embarrassed about the gospel? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to look here at what is called the triumphal entry of our Lord into the city of Jerusalem, which is normally identified as Palm Sunday. We have decided to call this the humble coronation of King Jesus, the humble coronation of King Jesus. Let me read the opening 11 verses of Matthew 21. Follow the narrative. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately He will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and He sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of Him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When He had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now put it mildly, that is a very strange coronation. Now, we don't experience coronations here in America. We've never had a king. In fact, we were born in an anti-king revolution. So we're not accustomed to coronations. We know very little about the majesty and the pomp and the ceremony that attends the establishment of a new monarch. It's nothing like the inauguration of a president. The closest we get to it is television and, and sort of seeing the... Um, grandeur of events that take place in the royal family. But generally speaking, we don't experience coronations firsthand. Here is a coronation. Jesus said to Pilate, I am a king. I am a king. My kingdom is not of this world. Scripture is clear that He's not just a king. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. And this coronation, as humble as it is, as meek as it is, as unlikely a coronation as it is, does demonstrate that He is, in fact, God's chosen King. The kings of the world would have their own coronations be as grandiose as possible. 
In our text, we have a very, very different kind of coronation. It is marked by an attitude of humility. It is totally the opposite of any coronation that would be held in the Western world through its history. Even though this is the king of all kings, this is the the one true king who will reign forever and ever over all kings in the future. This is no ordinary king, but this is an extraordinary coronation. Now I want us to look at this coronation. We're going to look at this passage uh, through four words, uh, four words, pilgrimage, prophecy, praise, and perplexity. Just those four words will unpack this for us. So we come down to verse 1 as this chapter begins, and we look at the pilgrimage, the pilgrimage. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem for the last time. Now He has left Galilee weeks before because He must walk from Galilee way in the north all the way down to the city of Jerusalem in Judea. And in the typical route, they would come out of Galilee, they would go east of the Jordan River, cross the Jordan River or close to the very headwaters of the Jordan River, get over on the east side, and they would come down through an area known as Perea, Perea. And uh, as our Lord did on this occasion, He came down through Perea, and along the way He ministered the truth of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, in the power of the kingdom, doing miracles as He came. He wouldn't come alone. He would come with all kinds of people from Galilee who would be traveling with Him, and He would be collecting people as He went. As the crowds gathered around Him in Perea, they would join the entourage and continue south. When He got down basically parallel to Jericho, uh, He would cross back over the Jordan, and that uh, is still a route you can take today on the famous Allenby Bridge. You get down the, the east side of the Jordan River, you cross over, and you're at Jericho or just near Jericho. So He would come back across the Jordan River, and He would be in Jericho. And they would walk from uh, Jericho with the crowd collecting more people as they went straight up the hill about 3,000 feet to the little village of Bethpage, which means house of figs. Now we don't know where it was, but it's most likely between Bethany, which is 15 miles up the hill from uh, Jericho, and Jerusalem, which is 17 miles. So somewhere along that area, somewhere around Bethany before you get to Jerusalem was this little place called house of figs. Back to verse 1, when they had approached Jerusalem and come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is also on the east side, so Bethpage is right around that area. He comes not in triumphant regal splendor. He comes with a strange collection of odd people who, um, who are not in uniforms, by the way, and don't have weapons. They don't constitute an army. They aren't formidable. They aren't any kind of threat. There's just a collection of the, of the people from here and there and everywhere. He comes not in regal splendor at all. He comes not with a triumphant army. He comes not to conquer, but but He comes in peace. And as I said, He did not travel alone. He arrives in Bethpage, and right there is also the village of Bethany where His friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are, and He has recently raised Lazarus from the dead. 
So he goes there to Bethany at night, and he stays there. He would have arrived in Bethpage on Saturday as we put the story together, and he would have stayed that Saturday night uh, with that little family in Bethany. So there he comes on that Saturday to the area just east of Jerusalem, six days before His crucifixion, six days until the Lamb of God becomes the Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, six days before He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, six days before the nails, the thorns, the spit, the the cursings, the spear, the hatred, the sin-bearing, the loneliness of being God-forsaken, six days before He feels the full fury of divine wrath for the sins of His people. So that's the pilgrimage. That is the end of the pilgrimage as far as we know it, a pilgrimage that lasted three years, or you could say a pilgrimage that lasted from the time He was born. His, His earthly pilgrimage as God incarnate was coming to its end, and this is the final journey. There will be no more travel after this. It all comes to an end in Jerusalem where He is crucified and from where He rises and ascends into glory. Now at this very moment, upon arriving there, it says, then Jesus sent two disciples. This is Passover week, and Jesus says, I want two of you disciples to do something for Me. This is a trigger event. And these two disciples are very likely Peter and John because in Luke 22.8, it was Peter and John who were chosen by the Lord to be sent on another mission, so perhaps that was a a common thing and it, it may well have been Peter and John. And what Jesus asked them to do is begin to stage the coronation. Now it is a bit disappointing when you have to stage your own coronation. What He does is very important. He wants to create a massive demonstration. That's exactly what He has in mind. He wants to create a massive demonstration. He wants to create a demonstration that makes it look like everybody is going after Jesus, everybody. He he wants to create a demonstration that's going to further anger the Jewish leaders. Why does He want to anger them? So that on His timetable, by Friday, they will hand Him over to the Romans to be executed, so He will be executed on the very Passover day. The timing of His cross, the timing of His death, He yielded up His Spirit, and the timing of His resurrection. It's all in His hand. He is no victim of the Jews. He is no victim of the Romans. He is no victim of Satan. He is in control of everything. So we see the end of the pilgrimage as our Lord enters Jerusalem to die and rise again in a few days. And again, the best chronology would put this event on Monday, even though we celebrate it on Sunday because that's when we meet. It was most likely Monday when our Lord entered the city. And by the way, that would be the very day that the Jewish people would pick their lamb for sacrifice. And that is the very day that our Lord picked His lamb for sacrifice. The Father picks the Son to be the lamb of God, God's lamb on that same day. So that is the end of the pilgrimage. The second word I want you to notice is prophecy. Prophecy, verse 2, here's what He says to those two disciples. 
Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to Me. Go into the village opposite you." That refers to Bethpage, which must have been just opposite Bethany where they were staying. This is an obscure village. We don't know anything about it. It's around the Mount of Olives, around the area of Bethany. It's all very, very close across the Kidron Valley on that ridge that overlooks the temple ground in Jerusalem. And uh, He says to them, you need to do this immediately. When you go, immediately, immediately you will find. Go to this village opposite you, immediately when you get there, that's essentially it, you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to Me." This is supernatural knowledge. He's not there. He can't see there, but He knows what is there. He knows there are these two animals. Mark tells us exactly where the two animals were found in Mark chapter 11. The Lord knew where they were, sent the two disciples exactly to that place, said, untie them and bring them to Me. Now, Jesus had no intention of keeping these animals permanently. He was just borrowing them for the afternoon. So in verse 3, He says, if anyone says anything to you like, hey, hey, where are you going with My animals? You shall say, the Lord has need of them. Now that tells me that He knew those people knew Him because all He had to say was, the Lord has need of them and that was it. This is a believing home. These are believing people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what is this about? Is it just a statement of humility? Is this just to make this a kind of counter-coronation? opposite any kind of normal coronation? Is this purely to demonstrate humility? Well, it does do that, but it's a much higher purpose. Look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Ah, so now we have a prophecy being fulfilled, an Old Testament messianic prophecy being fulfilled. This is the first of a lot of prophecies that will be fulfilled during Passion Week, including prophecies about His death, prophecies fulfilled on the cross, and prophecies fulfilled in His burial, and prophecies fulfilled in His resurrection. Now the prophecy in verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now that comes from Zechariah 9.9, that prophecy. The first line actually comes from Isaiah 62.11, say to the daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion is a kind of a Hebraism, kind of a a colloquialism that the Jews used to refer to the people of Jerusalem. Zion was the highest mountain in Jerusalem, higher than Mount Moriah. And uh, so Zion was the symbol of Jerusalem, and the, the daughter of Zion would be the people of that area. That is just a colloquial Hebrew figure of speech. So, say to the inhabitants of Jerusalem is what it's intended to say. Say to them, behold, your king is coming to you. That is quoted right out of Zechariah 9.9. Look, your king is coming to you. 
Four elements describe His character in verse 9 of Zechariah 9. First one, He is a king. Behold, your king is coming. Your king, your Messiah is coming to you. And I might just say that that fact that He's coming to you is kind of contrary to what mostly happens with kings. They don't come to you, you go to them. They don't come to you, you go to them. They, 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 they draw everything they can out of you to enrich them, but this king takes everything he has and gives it to you to enrich you. So he is a king. He is your king, Israel's king. That is Messiah. He is righteous, just. That is to say, he is virtuous. He is holy. He is sinless. He is a savior. He is endowed with salvation. Literally, that phrase is, He shows Himself a Savior. He shows Himself a Savior. And then He is humble or meek. And His meekness is symbolized in the fact that He is mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here comes Israel's true King who is righteous, who is Himself a Savior, and who is meek, and demonstrates that meekness by riding on this animal. So Jesus starts then for Jerusalem, a couple of miles away at the most, maybe less. He's coming officially as the King of Israel, prophesied by Zechariah to fulfill God's plan. The prophecy is so precise. It's not just an animal, it's a beast of burden. It's not just a beast of burden, but it's the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Prophecy is fulfilled explicitly. Now that takes us to the third word. We looked at the pilgrimage and the prophecy. Look at the praise in verses 8 and 9. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Again, this is a makeshift red carpet. A dirty. Dirty robes, uh, smelly robes are thrown down in the road. It's a, it's a very great multitude. The language indicates that. Now it includes, remember, all the people who came with Jesus from Galilee all the way down and, and the, they were accumulating people all the way like a snowball going down a hill. And uh, then there were great crowds of people who came to Bethany when Jesus was there to see Lazarus and Jesus. So that was a massive entourage, and that's coming into the city of Jerusalem. And then there are all those pe people already in the city of Jerusalem. So there's a converging of these two massive crowds at Passover. Literally hundreds of thousands of people is not an overstatement. Some have gone so far as to say it might even touch a million, though it's hard to imagine that. Two crowds surging together like two crashing breakers of the sea with our Lord in the middle. So the people are hailing Jesus as their conquering King. Now remember. Why, why would they even do this? Perhaps um, the buzz began to say, um, the great deliverance that we all remember from our history was the deliverance out of Egypt, right? When Moses, uh, our leader, led us out of Egypt uh, through the wilderness to the Promised Land. Passover was a commemoration of that great deliverance when Moses was their leader and how God delivered them from Egypt. 
They all expected that when the Messiah came, He would also deliver them from bondage to any blasphemous, uh, godless, Gentile power. So the assumption is if this is the Messiah, He's going to come and He's going to exercise power and authority and drive the Romans out, the blasphemous Romans, and uh, give us back our freedom. And remember, Jesus had said that He was greater than Moses, and He had shown that. How? Because He raised people from the dead. Moses never did that. So the people are filled with hope. It's Passover. If this is the Messiah, our deliverance is near. It is a very odd scene. It is a scene of dirty old clothes and broken branches thrown in front of a humble man riding on a donkey's colt. But even at that, it's amazing what happens. Verse 9, the crowds going ahead of Him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save now. Save now. Well, Zechariah 9.9 said He is a Savior. He is a King who is a Savior. So they hail their conquering King. They call on Him to deliver them from the Romans and all their enemies. They identify Him as the one coming in the name of the Lord, God's messenger sent by God. And they even say, save now in the highest. That is from the very abode of God. Send down divine power to save us. They look for Rome to be crushed because their Messiah had arrived. This is a pageant like no other king would ever have in history. And even though he was the greatest king, he had the most humble coronation. The last word is the one that helps us understand the whole picture, perplexity, verse 10. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. Now that verb is the verb for shaken. It's used three times in the book of Matthew to describe an earthquake. They were rattled. They were shaken. Listen to this. They said, who is this? And does this tell you the insanity of a mob? They're saying all this and they don't know who they're talking about. They're, they're putting on this massive demonstration and they don't even know who He is. Luke says, the whole crowd is praising God with a loud voice. Mark says, the Pharisees commented with these words, the whole world has gone after Him. They were caught up in a melee. Who is this? This is that prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The people, they were fickle. They weren't sure even who He was. They were caught up in the messianic euphoria. The leaders, they were incensed. They were terrified because it looked like the whole world was going out to support Him, and how would they be able with that kind of commitment to Him from the people to have Him killed? 
If he was that popular, how could they get away with killing him? Well, as you know, the next day he did go to battle, but he didn't go to battle against the Romans. He went right to the temple and attacked Judaism at its heart. He dismantled the temple operation, threw the buyers and sellers and money changers out and declared that they had turned the house of God into a den of thieves. Instead of attacking Rome, he attacks Jerusalem, and he attacks the religious system and the religious leaders who were the leaders of the nation. That assured that they were going to have to put an end to him. He was now massively popular, and he was attacking their system. That sets the table for them to drive him eventually to the cross. Through a middle-of-the-night phony trial with false witnesses, every bit of it illegal, they pronounce a death sentence on him and they execute him in the morning on Friday, exactly at the hour that God had planned so that He would die as the Passover lamb for the sins of His people. It is a very strange coronation. And I will say this, that there is always a place in the world for the Jesus that people want. There's just not always a place for the Jesus who is. If you thought He came like a genie out of a bottle to do what you want Him to do, you've got the wrong Jesus. He came to confront your sin and your need and to offer you a gracious salvation through faith in His name. Thankfully, He was in control of everything. Thankfully, they didn't make Him a king. They had tried a few other times to do that. Thankfully, it was just a few hours until He attacked the temple, turned all the leaders against Him, and then the leaders began to work on those few days to turn the people against Him, and finally the people were shouting something different. It wasn't, your king has come. It wasn't, save now. It was, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. He cannot be anybody's king unless He is, first of all, their lamb, slain in their place for sin. You know, when you think about what is called the triumphal entry, the day when the Lord Jesus entered into Jerusalem and, and the people threw down their robes and threw down palm branches and hailed Him as the Messiah, it looked like the fulfillment of everything that He had hoped for and the disciples had hoped for and everything that the Jewish people had hoped for in the arrival of their Messiah. And they were saying things like, Hail, Son of David, which are messianic expressions. But we all know, a few days later, the crowd had turned. And maybe not just the crowd, but primarily the leaders. After a few days in the temple that final week of our Lord's life, debating Jesus and being unmasked as hypocrites, they turned on Him. They arrested Him. 
They put him on trial, a series of false trials, unjust trials. Then they executed him on a cross at the hands of the Romans. I mean, it's really an amazing shift from hailing him as Messiah to a few days later saying, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. Stay with us as we consider these things that led up to his cross and then the glory of his resurrection on the third day.